Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, Bobby McElvain was 26 years old when he was killed in the attacks on the World Trade Center on 9-11. A new Atlantic cover story takes a deep look at how Bobby's loved ones have grieved and made sense of his death in very different ways. One repressed the pain, another was driven down the rabbit hole of 9-11 conspiracy theories. Next month marks 20 years since the 9-11 attacks. Atlantic staff writer Jennifer Sr. joins us to share what she's learned through the story of the McIlvains about how people process sudden traumatic loss. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. It's been nearly two decades since Bobby McElvain went to Windows on the World restaurant at the World Trade Center for a conference on the morning of 9-11 and never came home. He was 26 years old. From that point forward, Jennifer Sr. writes in The Atlantic, I watched as everyone in the blast radius of this horrible event tried to make sense of it, tried to cope. There were McElvain's parents, his brother, and the woman he was preparing to propose to, and they've all mourned Bobby's death very differently. Jennifer Sr., welcome to Forum. Thank you so much for having me here. Really appreciate you being on. And you also knew Bobby McElvain well. How did you know him? I did, and it's what made me want to write the story. Um, my brother was his roommate for eight consecutive years. Um, a, a pure fluke of timing had him, he, he arrived last at college and wound up throwing his stuff on the bunk bed and the other bunk was Bobby's. Mm. And they remained college roommates for four years and they became so close that when they were young men trying to live in New York, which is totally unaffordable for <laughs> two kids starting out, they got a two bedroom and they were living together um, on September 11th still. I, it was almost, it was probably like the eighth anniversary of the day they met practically, right? Cause you start college in September, mm. you know, when he left, you know, their apartment and didn't come back. So I knew Bobby. Yeah, sure. He was my brother's roommate. And so you, you really were able to get a very close up look at how his loved ones, including your brother have dealt with Bobby's death. One of the things that's so striking about your piece is just how differently family members, loved ones of Bobby McIlvain responded. If you wouldn't mind, I'd love to start with how his dad responded, his father, Bob. Um, he told you that the only thing he does is 9-11 stuff, that since Bobby's death, his whole life revolves around that day. Can you describe what that looks like for him? Yes. And by the way, I, I really appreciate the direction that I think you're going because that's exactly it. The whole story I write is sort of about looking at the very different ways that people approach grief. So by all means, let's start with Bobby's father because he is a really extreme example of something. And it was something that I had never, I had not been prepared to come across, which is that he fully inhabits his grief. It's mm -hmm. as if every day is September 12th for him. It's as if it just happened. And so what that looks like is, well, it started, I think, as it does for most people, 
there's the numbness, there's the disbelief, there's just the simple task for the first year or two of just trying to get out of bed. And he did that along with everybody else who sort of suffers from this kind of thing. Um, and the kind of intense reorganization that one goes through of having to figure out what your world means without this person in it. Um, but what I, what's interesting about what he did is at first he found an outlet in kind of activism, anti-war activism, marching against the Afghanistan war, marching against Iraq. But eventually he became very interested in American kind of abuses of power abroad. And mm. one day he decided that the American government was behind September 11th, that this was an inside job, that it had been a controlled demolition. And then he went off further and read lots of different books and came up with a very elaborate kind of explanation for why the government had decided to destroy the Twin Towers. And it's not like the kind of thing that even if you dive down many, many rabbit holes um, on the Internet, you would even find. But he came up with this bespoke, quite elaborate, tailored theory based on his reading that is still shifting, actually. And he's still adding to. Yes. And. Yeah, go on. You, you you mentioned that he even created a sort of bunker, as you describe it, a research bunker in his Pennsylvania home. Yep. So you go into Bobby's former bedroom and it's his dad's study and it's got files and books and a map on the wall that's freckled with pins, you know, marking every country that either he has been to or whose media he has chatted with about what he believes to be the real cause of September 11th, um, which is not, or, or the real cause of the towers falling. Um, he's treating this as if it's a, like kind of a cold case that he's in investigating a murder. Yes, he even got a copy of the coroner's report, um, the medical exam that they did on, on Bobby's body, which I was struck by because I think you mentioned that he was one of fewer than a hundred corpses that were recovered from the wreckage. Can you talk about, I mean, it sounds like that report also really drove him down some of these theories. The it did. Of- and in, that's right. And in fact, that's probably where it all started. It was when he got the coroner's report. That was when he decided that something was fishy. So to back up, yes, Bobby was one of a hundred bodies, civilian bodies that was recovered almost fully intact, which suggests that he was not in windows on the world at the time that the plane struck because anybody who was was trapped no one could get down if they were above a certain floor so he had probably already left the building the assumption that his bosses made at merrill lynch was that he had gone to set up a colleague and he had set him up he had attended breakfast and he had left before the keynote speaker because his body was found on the periphery of the site probably close to the merrill lynch building and he had probably been hit by debris Mm -hmm. you know that would be the theory but what caught um, his father's attention was he looked at the report and the report, I mean, it's a very gruesome report to look at. Bobby was right. So he was mostly decapitated. There was just sort of the bottom set of his teeth remained. I guess his top teeth too, a little bit at the top um, because he was ultimately, his identity was confirmed by dental records. But um, even though, and his wallet was in his pocket um, and his right arm was taken off. But what his father became really preoccupied with was that the injuries to Bobby's body were on the front of his body. They were not on his back. So his theory was if he was running away from the building and he was hit in the head by debris, wouldn't he have fallen forward and wouldn't his back be all scarred and wouldn't there be all sorts of terrible lacerations and burns on his back, which was instead rather pristine. And that was what made him believe that it was a controlled demolition. I, I of course, would have other explanations for why this could be the case. And so would coroners. But But yeah, he didn't. What is so overwhelming about that is, as you say, he, he studied that with, you know, so meticulously. He keeps the grief so close on a daily basis. What effect have you observed that it's had on Bob to keep the grief so close? Well, now, yeah, yes, I mean, exactly. I was going to say, on the one hand, the surprise was exactly what you said. He clearly needs it, right? Like, he's making a choice. He's making a choice every day to be in his son's company, and Mm -hmm. it, it matters to him. 
And he says, to, he says explicitly that it makes him feel closer to Bobby to do this. His wife also would argue that it's his way of still parenting. And you have to remember, Bobby was 26. He was still in some ways a child in his parents' imagination. You know, he hadn't yet proposed. He hadn't yet moved in with his girlfriend or started a new family. I think it, he is still locked in their, his parents' hearts as a young boy in some funny ways, if you know what I mean. So yeah. this is a way to still protect him. Uh, now, this said, it's excruciating for Bob Sr. It's excruciating for his father to, to, to do this every day. He is always in immense pain and it's really near the surface and he cries really easily and he cries often. He cries, I think daily. Um, so it's not, I, I, I hesitate to use this language, but it's not necessarily quote unquote productive in that he gets him around this episode or through it. You know, he doesn't seem to have much interest in quote unquote resolving it, if you know mm -hmm. what I mean. Mm -hmm. And that was the big reveal for me. We're talking with Jennifer, senior staff writer at The Atlantic. Her story is what Bobby McElvain left behind. In that story, Jennifer, senior, you say that while Bob senior chose to feed his grief, his wife, Helen, chose to starve hers. Can you describe how Helen responded to Bobby's death? Yes, it was almost a photo negative of what her husband's grief looked like. She did not want to spend any time immersing herself in the details of September 11th. She did not want to talk about September 11th. And she did not want to be identified as a grief-stricken, bereft parent, um, you, you know, a, a survivor somehow of September 11th. Mm -hmm. She did not want pity. She did not want to manage other people's awkward reactions and discomfort. She avoided going to the grocery store that she had shopped in for 15 years because she just did not want to deal with other people sort of sitting there in front of her and stammering out their condolences and saying well-intentioned but often very upsetting things right. like, oh, you know, I held my son very close last night knowing that you will never have that again. I mean, that was not of any help to her. And she, people said it, not trying to hurt her, but of course these things are inadvertently hurtful. She just didn't want to deal with it. And, you know, she didn't want to talk about it at work. She didn't want people whispering and pointing and saying, there's the, you know, she lived outside of the New York orbit. She was in Philadelphia. There were fewer people who were associated with September 11th once you got that far out. And she just didn't want to be singled out. She was stoic about it and confessed to me that, you know, it wasn't doing her any good. She realized many years in, oh, maybe I should start talking about this. I'm just stewing here. You know, I'm not, I'm not getting anywhere. You know, it was not helping her, but it was her own way of coping, the way that her husband had his way of coping. We're reflecting on the 20th anniversary of 9-11 and the grief that remains two decades later, in particular for a family called the McIlvains, with Jennifer Sr., staff writer at The Atlantic. And I want to invite you, our listeners, to join the conversation. Do you hear echoes of your own experience with grief or the grief of someone you know in the experiences of the McIlvains? Or what does this 20th anniversary of 9-11 mean to you? Is there a connection that you'd like to share with it? We welcome your stories and reflections. You can give us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. You can email your questions, thoughts, reflections to forum at KQED. Dot org. The piece is titled What Bobby McIlvain Left Behind and Pete tweets, a wonderful, deeply written story. The pictures of Bobby's parents are so poignant. Helen's statement on giving up her anger, it wasn't serving me well. Her support for Bobby's dad, I'm defending the person, not the view. This loving and giving is what formed Bobby. We'll have more after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Here's Jeff McIlvain on Good Morning America talking about his older brother, Bobby McIlvain, who died in the attack on the World Trade Center on 9-11. My brother was a lot of things to a lot of people. And I think uh, he had an indescribable 
way about him that just made people want to be around him. And, um, you know, 20 years later, uh, there are people who had very small interactions with him that still remember him to this day. Next month marks 20 years since the 9-11 attacks, and we're joined by Atlantic staff writer Jennifer Sr., who's written about how the McIlvain family has mourned the death of Bobby. And we invite you, our listeners, to share any reactions or reflections at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can email us, forum at kqed.org, or get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Just before the break, Jennifer Sr., you were talking about how Bobby's mom, Helen, was sort of realizing that the, that sort of the pushing down the repression, the not talking about it, wasn't serving her quite so well. Can you just describe briefly how she came to realize that? Yes. She told me that she was um, snippier than she wanted to be and got more gossipy than was her previous inclination. She just was, she was angry. You know, there was a lot of kind of free-floating anger that she realized was just all coming out around, probably unconsciously, you know, around this. And that she wasn't like the woman she wanted to be. She just had become someone else. And she really, at that moment, had to make a conscious decision. I have to be someone else, which means I have to reorganize my thoughts around this and I have to start talking. It was very profound because it's very hard, particularly when you're in your 60s, to just wake up and decide that you want to be different. You know, you could just stay with your old habits. You know, they've served you for the however long. Yes. How did living with a man who all he wanted to do was talk about 9-11 affect her and their and their marriage, given the fact that she responded so differently? Oh, it was hard. <laughs> it was really hard. And that was the advantage to my having known the McIlvain family, that she was willing to talk with me honestly about that, you know, um, and so was he. I mean, it, she told me about all these just mindless, ordinarily frictionless interactions that a person should be able to have with one, you know, one spouse, like her coming down the stairs and looking at her husband and saying, you know, I think I want to go out today and buy a new blouse. And him looking at her and saying, did you know that the government is lying about when Osama bin Laden died? Mm. And what do you do with that? You know, you just want to have like a dopey everyday banal interaction with your spouse and that happens or more to the point you know they would go to dinner parties and he would start talking right or like she would be washing the dishes and he would say something kind of upsetting i think bobby jumped you know or something like that which which he didn't and she just doesn't want to know she doesn't want to know about what her what her beautiful boy's body looks like and what where the burns are you know and it, it became, and they had to, they had to really work that out and talk that through and come to understand that they were going to grieve very differently. Yeah. And yeah. And, and I, the glue that really kept them together is that no one else in the world could know what it was like to lose this per, you know, this wonderful person. They're the only ones who could relate to that. Yes. Th that she could never dream of abandoning him, you say, because he's the only other person in the world who understands what it feels like to have raised Bobby McIlvain and lost him. I thought that was so poignant. Yes. Um, thank you. I didn't mean to step on a line you were going to. No, read. no, that not is... at all. You were not. I, I, <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah, no, I, I uh, just wanted I to, yeah. to, to share some of what you put in your piece that really was so moving. I, well, and thanks for finding it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, that was where I just had to land, right? Because I mean, it, it would, it's so isolating to lose a child. And also there's only one person who's as intimately and thoroughly acquainted with that child, yes. right? It's just gonna be the person you raised him with, maybe the siblings, but not in the same way, never, never in the same way. So, you know, um, and there was only one, there was Jeff, you know, so I, I think that this is really, um, and also I was writing about other things that really made Bob a, a very dear husband to her. I mean, he's, he's quite a dear man, you know, and, she, I mean, and when she told me about the fact that like, he was the only man who pursued her when she was a young woman, who, 
took her seriously when she said, you know, I like playing tennis. I like skiing. Can we do those things? Like it was very macho in those days. You did those things with the men. And he was like, sure. And he missed a, he missed a Super Bowl with her because she wanted to go like skiing on a bunny hill somewhere. You know, like there were just like things that it's like, oh, I get it. That that's your glue. That's like really strong glue. Yeah. I, I, I totally see that. And I like him a lot. I mean, I do. I I love Bob. I, you know, I do. I I don't believe a word he says about September 11th. I I I think he's totally wrong about all of this, you know, and I, but, but I love him as a human very deeply. Well, let me go to some calls. Let's go to David in San Francisco. Hi, David. Hi there. Thank you for taking my call. Um, Yeah. I lost a friend on 9-11 and um, to this day, I still get extremely upset thinking about it. Um, not just the fact that he died, but I'm like Bobby's father in that I, and my dad was a concrete form engineer who built many foundations and high rise buildings here in the city. Um, and I, you know, only took a little bit of research and I started to realize we weren't told the full story of what happened. And I'm not saying there's some big conspiracy, but I just need to get this out that um, most people don't realize three towers fell on 9-11, not two, three. Building seven was a third tower. Um, there's a group called Architects and Engineers for Truth, AE Truth, on the Internet. I encourage everyone to look at, and it's thousands of engineers and architects who work on these buildings, and they're on record as saying, there's no way that those planes brought the towers down. I'm sorry. So there's something else going on. It just burns me inside to know that he died and no one seems to care to find out the actual reason. Well, David, I'm so sorry for the loss of your friend. And it's interesting that you say that that you see or hear echoes of your own experience of thinking about it that uh, Bobby sees. One of the things um, Jennifer Sr., that has come up around this is the fact that not just people are questioning what happened, they're they're trying to find truth in places that may or may not yield them. But at the same time, too, when you lose somebody in an event like this, you absolutely also know nothing about those moments, like the, the what they were going through when they passed. There's just a lot of questions that I think seem to really just stay with you and sort of uh, encompass you after an event like 9-11. And I think that that is the most unique form of torture that the families feel. We know as a mass event what it looked like from watching endless spools of the coverage, watching the towers fall and watching the planes hit. What you can't know is about the individual lives, the individual moments preceding everyone's death. You read horrifying things about people standing on desks because the floor became too hot. You know that the windows, that people were jumping, but it's unclear from which floors. No one knows exactly how their loved ones died. Did they asphyxiate? Did they, were they thrown? Were they hit in the head? And I think how much suffering preceded their deaths, that was something that just absolutely tore Bob Sr. up. And drove him to, even though he knew it was going to be very hard, to get the Emmy's report, the medical examiner's report. He was wondering if it would contain clues as to what, how Bobby was spending his last minutes and to know what the precise cause of death is. So I think that like anything that you can do that can, it's a form of undoing, uh, not of magical thinking, but of just trying, you know, you, we have this drive to create whole stories and to create narratives and to make sense of senseless things. So yes, for sure. You talked to a, a therapist early on. Um, well, actually the the McIlvains did, who basically told them that they should sort of imagine that they're all on top of a mountain, but they all have broken bones and they can't help each other. So they each have to sort of come down or find their own way down from this mountain of grief. Um, but you found that it's possible some people never make it down. And I think that that's true of Bob Sr. And I think he would say that. And I think he would say, and I don't really have any interest in coming down. I like it up here. Thank you very much. It's it's just suiting me fine up here in my parka, you know? Uh, and and so, yeah. um, and, and, you know, and then we look at it 
I think culture wide as perhaps a failure not to get down the mountain. And I really had to let go of that idea. I mean, I think that you can make a persuasive case that if others need you to come down the mountain for the sake of their, you know, their marriage or, or for, you know, if, if your children need you for different reasons that you, you might have motives to do so, right? And there are compelling reasons to figure out ways down. But I mean, I think that Bob has found some very interesting way of like kind of doing both. He sort of goes down, but then takes the lift back up, if you know what I mean. <laughs> um, so that he's, he's kind of yo-yoing. Um, and I, I think that's interesting. I think we have very simplistic ideas about grief, that it's sequential and all that. You know, it's not. Yes, I, I, I did want to ask you what you've learned about grief through, you know, processing the McElvain's reactions to Bobby's death and, and our social and cultural sort of ways that we gravitate towards the right ways to react to it. And, and you're hitting on some of those right now. I don't know if there's anything you want to add. Yeah, no, sure. I mean, first of all, I think that people, all the literature seems to suggest that things happen sequentially and they don't, you know, there's the stages of grief, but in fact, people zing back and forth between different stages. And there are a number of models that propose stages of grief and the authors of those models over time conceded that, okay, maybe they're not sequential. People sort of can bounce between, you know, denial and depression and bargaining back to denial, then to acceptance. And then you don't accept it the next day. You know, that was Kubler-Ross. You know, there are all sorts of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. Those are all sorts, you know, that's one model. So you could say that. I think another thing is that it's, um, it might, as a friend or a close person to a bereaved person, it might be helpful to bear in mind that it's a form of tyranny to tell someone to get over it, <laughs> you know? Um, the, the, you might need to just allow people sort of their own um, confusion and that they have, you have to trust their confusion that their confusion is serving some purpose. That's mm. what I would say. Let me go to caller Cynthia in Sausalito. Hi, Cynthia. Thanks for taking my call. I, I never called in. Oh, Cynthia, unfortunately, your connection is a little rough. Do you mind trying to call us back on a different line? Um, in the meantime, let me try to go to... This comment from Josie who writes, a native New Yorker on September 11th, I was a medical student and up early about 5.30 and driving across the bridge to a shift at San Francisco General Hospital's emergency room. I heard the first reports on NPR. I called my family and friends throughout the day but couldn't reach my best friend, a teacher, likely in a classroom that morning. But I reached her mom who told me, oh, thank you, we are all fine. I have touched base with everyone. Later that day, we learned their family had lost T, who was a newly minted firefighter who got into the second tower soon before it collapsed for his parents a lifetime of sadness jennifer singer can you talk about what happened with bobby's diary yes i can but before can i just say one yes thing do you want to react that? to josie yeah yeah you know just to say a lifetime of sadness it, it that's really putting it like it is you know i i knew what to say to my brother afterwards thinking he would find another companion with whom to move through the world and and it wouldn't be bob but he would find someone who would fill that role and form new memories and you know but i don't know if that happens for parents i, I think i just think it's the worst kind of loss um let, let's go to the diary the diary the diary the diary is really what motivated me to think about this piece because when bobby died Bobby was this wonderful writer and journaler, and he was unusual. He was this adolescent boy who kept very introspective journals from the time he was a teenager. He was still keeping them as a young man. And he had one going the year that he died. And it was on his desk when he died. And when it came time to clear out his belongings, his father was up in his room. His mother couldn't even bring himself to, herself to be in there. His father was in his room with my brother and another friend and Jen, the woman to whom Bobby was about to propose. And he started distributing the diaries saying, maybe you can find something useful in here for the eulogies. And Jen, the almost fiance, took one look at the most current diary and said, oh my God, may I keep this? And he said, sure. You know, he didn't even think twice. Yeah. He just thought, of course, because he kept seeing her name. I mean, she kept seeing her name. And that turned out to be a catastrophic mistake. It turned out that Helen, his wife, really wanted that diary. She wanted every molecule of everything that had ever been her son's. And she took one look at her husband and said, how could you have given away this last relic, this last intimate thing 
filled with our son's thoughts, fresh thoughts. It was a chance to hear his voice and spend time in his company one last time. And you just idly gave it away. And that was, oh my goodness, the beginning of a very long saga. Yes. And therein also lies another facet of grief. You were talking about how we we yearn and search for any last piece of this person um, in some way, because all of these additional objects can in some way recover the person for us. Exactly. And that actually was the one of all the theories of grief, the yearning and searching phase is the one that spoke to me, developed by two British psychiatrists named John Bowlby, who developed attachment theory and uh, Colin Murray Parks. And they talk about trying to recover the dead, even though they know you can't recover the dead, but you do it by proxy, right? And a diary is a proxy for a person. That's exactly it. So she was desperate to have this thing, his mother. Um, and she kept asking the Jen, yes. Bobby's fiance, for it back. And that wasn't going to happen. And right. eventually she just said, yeah. <laughs> So eventually, oh my goodness, my notifications were supposed to not be going off. Oh dear, I'm so sorry. I don't oh no, know that's that okay. Was, I don't know if that was audible. I turned them off. Barely. Um, okay, good. Um, let's just hope that they go away. Um, but uh, maybe I'll shut my phone off. Um, but she, she said, you know, please, please, um, you know, can I have this? And he said, and and Jen said no. And eventually, she said. Um, look, if Bobby is describing a tree, all I want is the words. Please tell me about the description of a tree. And still, Jen didn't give it back. Nothing. Yeah. And that was a real source of painful tension. And, and, it, and so interesting because it really sounds like the reasons that Jen wanted to hold on to the diary and have it be something only she knew was in part the very same thing that was causing Helen to fixate on it so much too, having this, this piece of Bobby. Yes. And Jen, it turned out, had her own reasons for that. I mean, yes, she, the same impulses were behind that, plus others. I mean, I don't want to give away the content of the diary and what's yeah. in the diary. I think it's very important. I want people to read this story so they understand what Jen's motives were. She had her own very complex set of motives. For years, I thought Jen was this heartless villain who was holding out. And of course, at some point I woke up and thought, I met Jen. She was lovely. She had, there must be another explanation. And there was, there was. There's always so much more complex than we realize. We're reflecting always. on the 20th anniversary of 9-11 and the grief that remains two decades later with Jennifer Senior, staff writer for The Atlantic. Her story is what Bobby McIlvain left behind. And you, our listeners, if you want to tell us if you hear echoes of your own experience with grief um, in the, or the grief of someone you know in the experiences of the McIlvains, you can tell us at 866-733-6786. You can email us, forum at kqed.org, or post your thoughts or comments on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Or if you are reflecting on 9-11 since 20, the 20th anniversary is, is very soon, please feel free to let us know what you are reflecting on. We welcome your stories and reflections, and we will have more with you after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're reflecting on 9-11 and the story of a family who lost a loved one on 9-11, the McIlvains. We're talking with Jennifer Sr., who wrote a piece for The Atlantic titled, What Bobby McIlvain Left Behind. And you can join the conversation at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. And let me go to caller Cynthia in Sausalito. Cynthia, thanks for calling back. You're welcome. Can you hear me? I can now, y'all. Okay. Well, I just, I want to thank you for having this story. And just to say, I listen all the time and, to, and I've never called in and I really felt compelled to because I'm surprised at how emotional I'm feeling listening to this. I was in New York and living there on September 11th. I didn't know anybody personally who, who died that day, but um, the trauma exists for those of us who watched it 
um, you know, my office, we could see the bills with the first power fall. And, um, you know, many of us went down and left our office and, and walked as all we could do is just walk. And I have this memory of how silent the streets were and people just listening on their radios from their cars, just mm-hmm. not knowing what to do and everybody looking dazed. And, um, you know, when we got down there, there was nothing we could do. And there wasn't anything anybody could do, even the, the paramedics and the firefighters. It just, there was such chaos until it was really known. And even after it was known what was happening. And I remember walking to a hospital to, to give blood and, and everybody just was so um, confused and trying to do their best. And anyway, I'm just surprised at how it's bringing back those memories. And so my heart really goes out to people who, who lost people. And, and I am listening to what the, um, the writer shared about how trauma buries itself. And it's just, Yes. Caught me off guard, and I just anyway reflecting. Thank you. Well, Cynthia, thank you for calling in and 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 being a listener, Jennifer. I don't know if you have a response for Cynthia. Well, you know, it's I do. I mean, first of all, I, I share that. I think she's right, and I think it's um, it, there's a lot of PTSD for people still, and it took people forever to get used to sirens again, and people were jittery on the subway for forever after that. But also, that helplessness that she was describing. I mean, imagine that multiplied by you know 1 billion for the families who have just discovered that their kids are gone their husbands parents and siblings are gone i mean it it it's really it's the unacceptable it's the unthinkable you know and i i just think about how yes the ordinary average civilian couldn't wrap their heads around it and then there were all these other people you know what really, are your, yeah what are your thoughts jennifer senior about processing the 20th anniversary of 9-11 in the middle of a different but another mass tragedy with regard to the pandemic that is upending the country. Did that occur to you? Did parallels occur to you as you were writing this piece about 9-11? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, definitely they were all in the middle of mass grieving. But what's so strange is that we're grieving so differently this time around. And I was just thinking about um, your last callers, you know, that, that poignant thing, right? That she ran to go give blood. Everyone was running to go give blood. Like the thought was, how can I help? And I, I think um, we've lost a lot of the, how can I help impulse during this crisis? I think there's a lot of everybody backing into their respective corners. You know, I think about the fact that 81% of the country or something like that was like totally behind George Bush, highest approval rating ever, right, George W., um, and how polarized everybody was in the midst of this, that it's just, we are grieving in the midst of a much more tense time where we don't love our fellow Americans in quite the same way and feel the same sort of bonds with one another. Mm. So our grieving feels much more individual this time around and politicized in a way that it wasn't back then, I would say. That's my first yeah. impulse. Interesting point. Let me go to caller Laura in Berkeley. Hi, Laura. Oh, good morning. I just wanted to thank you for writing this piece. It was so beautifully done. I was sitting at the dining room table and couldn't stop reading it. I sat there for an hour. I left my child on a tablet. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Join the club. I moved moved a meeting that I was supposed to be on. I couldn't let it go. It was remarkable. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Laura, thank you for that. Uh, Deborah writes, I spent a year writing and publishing stories about a Connecticut woman who lost her husband in the World Trade Center. I spent time with several 9-11 widows and also saw how differently each handled grief. One wanted no pity and was determined to move on. Another left her husband's shoes by the door nearly a year later. And another started dating again before the first anniversary. It taught me that there is no right way to grieve something so horrific and also how resilient we humans can be. Um, I I wanted to play another, we'd heard earlier a little bit of a cut from Bobby's brother, Jeff, and I wanna play another moment where he is again talking on Good Morning America about how he keeps Bobby's memory, memory alive with his kids. We talk about them constantly. You know, it, it happens uh, organically. You know, we don't really sit down and say, today we're going to spend an hour talking about Uncle Bobby, but that's how they refer to him. Uh, my oldest son is named after him, so his name is Bobby. So when we talk about my brother, we, we call him Uncle Bobby. And anytime I can share an antidote or a story or something funny that he did, um, I, I make sure that I do that. 
it's a it's a very safe place for me to to share those those stories without feeling like I'm like I'm burdening anybody. Um, they enjoy hearing about them all the time. One of the things, Jennifer Senior, I was struck by in in reading your description about Bobby's brother processes Bobby's death was that in in many ways, like he he seemed to not that it didn't affect him as deeply, but he he seemed to be presenting to you somebody who really you know, intellectually has wrapped his mind around this in a way that makes a lot of sense, I guess. Like, for example, he 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 realized that Bobby would never have wanted his death to ruin his brother. So he needed and wanted to stay strong for him. But but there's this moment where you get a sense of the profoundness of the pain that Jeff is feeling when he talks about his decision to have four kids was directly tied to Bobby's death. Can you describe that a little bit. Yeah. And in fact, in real time, it gave me chills because I just looked at him and I said, Jeff, if Bobby hadn't died, would you have ever had four? And he, cause, and he cut me off and he said, children, no, definitely not. I mean, he knew just where I was going and he had a very definite, clear response to this. And I thought wrongly, he was going to say, because I felt some kind of obligation to provide all the grandbabies so that my parents could still have four grandkids, you know, just, you know, the average two, you know, 2.1 children or whatever. And that wasn't what he said. He said, if I know what it's like now to be an only child, to have no one to talk to just about what it was like growing up and about our parents. And I don't want, and God forbid, lightning ever strikes again. I don't want that to happen. I don't want that. I don't want any of my kids to be put in that position. I want them to have company. I yeah. want them to have others, which blew me away. Yes. Um, and as you said, you know, he had a very thoughtful kind of response to this. I mean, he thought this all through that like he had too much of his life left to live. He was too young to let this destroy his life. And he knew that it would have killed his brother all over again if his brother had known that this would have like somehow derailed his younger brother and, and and knocked everybody off course. He made a conscious choice that the best way to honor his brother was to to lead the fullest life he could. Well, this listener writes, my brother was killed while serving in Iraq in 2007. He decided to serve in spite of being a mostly liberal progressive guy out of idealism and duty, and in part due to the experience of seeing the sight of the fallen towers a week after they fell. Our family is at peace with his choice and proud of his service, but the grief never goes away. As the author intimated, the person gone was raised from birth, the infant, the grade school kid growing, learning, making mistakes, the teenager surprising you with his humanity and decency and hard-earned achievements, the adult making his own thoughtful choices. You don't lose a person of a given age on a single day. You lose a lifetime of accumulated care and hopes right up to the moment of their death. Would you send that to me? That's so beautiful. Yes, <laughs> I will. Sure I can, I'm not sure I can talk. That's yes, gorgeous. I, I will. And I thank this this listener for that, that reflection. Um, beautiful. Another listener writes, I stole some of the flowers from the gravesite of my best friend who died in that explosion at the illegal fireworks factory in East Tennessee in the early 80s. It was the only tangible thing I had to remember her by. Oh, objects, they are mysterious and talismanic and magical first. I, I, I totally understand that. I mean, that's the diary that's, you know, um, I mean, Bob Sr. keeps a big trove of Bobby's belongings that he returns to, including, you know, he's got that wallet at home. He, you know, everybody has things, they have things because you've got to conjure them somehow. And it feels like a betrayal um, to, to stop remembering them in some ways. You know, I wrote at one moment that it's the craziest thing that dead abandon you, but then with time you abandon the dead and it feels awful. It feels, it feels wrong. So I totally understand the impulse to have diaries and look at wallets and steal flowers. I get it. 
Yes. And this listener seems to get Bob McElvain. This listener tweets, I had a shocking traumatic loss about 15 years ago. I immersed myself in the magical thinking of research and rumination. I didn't want to let go of the person I had lost. And immersing myself in their last moments was a way to still be with them in perpetuity. I want people to know how alienating and lonely it was, how helpless I felt in my obsessive research, and how I still can't explain why I processed my grief that way when others didn't. I knew I was out of touch with reality and I couldn't stop myself. I related so much to Mr. McIlvain and I wish I could hug him. So can I tell you something that is so, um, I think appropriate for this. There is a, a quote that people mistakenly attribute to Sigmund Freud, which is that grief is an, grieving is another form of loving. And it wasn't quite that economical, that, the quote, but he wrote something like it to a fellow analyst who had just lost a child because Freud had lost his beloved, one of his beloved daughters at 26, the same age as Bobby, and had basically said that this was a way of keeping her alive in his heart so that he wouldn't have to let go of her. Like he was just terrified of the idea of letting go of her. Um, and so again, the, the, it all makes sense to me. It makes yes. sense. You know, you could you could argue that it, it makes that it's it's more puzzling in some ways to move forward. You know what I mean? When you look at it that way. We're reflecting on the 20th anniversary of 9-11, the grief that remains two decades later and the experiences of the family called the McIlvains. Jennifer Sr., staff writer at The Atlantic, has the cover story for September. The story is titled What Bobby McIlvain Left Behind. And you, our listeners, are joining the conversation with your thoughts and reflections. And you've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Rachel writes, this show is touching so many threads. My beloved young brother, who lost many colleagues and friends at the company Cantor Fitzgerald on 9-11, passed away from other causes two years later. I watched our whole family mourn in unique ways. Several years later, my mother, who suffered immensely, called to say, I had what I think you would call an epiphany. I still hate that he died, but I know it's a part of life. I think it's important for all Americans to hear and read this story so we never forget what has been a life-changing event in our country. It's interesting this person talks about the mother's epiphany that it is a part of life. In some ways, there are, a lot of your story is about death as as a part of life, as so immediately tied in those two things, and that how life life does go on in many ways. I don't know if you had a similar reaction to what Rachel wrote there, but that, that, that I think she had a similar epiphany, and it was an epiphany, you know. And I think she also sort of evolved spiritually and made some kind of sense of death being a part of life in a spiritual sense, you know, thinking about you know, long cycles of, you know, what we start as and where we go. Um, so I, I do think that that's true. And also that other generations come along, right? I mean, that, that you know, she has grandkids now and th that's the next cycle and she is there for them, you know, and that people need her and that she can still caretake, um, you know, and one of them has her son's name. Let me go to caller Dorothea in Berkeley. Hi, Dorothea. Hi. Um, I wanted to share an experience I've had. My sister died of leukemia at 28. I was 24. I have had a recurring dream that she's still alive, but she's living far away, and she doesn't want to have anything to do with me, us, my, my mom and dad. Mm. And the dream, it only this uh, feeling of loss, but also I'm recreating her. I'm giving her another life, but I'm also upset with her that she left me. And I just wanted to, I'm sure other people have had this experience where there's still, there's anger at the person who's gone, but mm -hmm. it's only expressed in dreams and it's a recurring dream. So I thought I'd share that uh, because it's, it's, an, it's an unusual way that we acknowledge feelings that can't be acknowledged when we're awake. Dorothy, thank you. Thank you. And, and I'm sorry for your loss. Um, Jennifer Sr., the, the anger actually reminds me a little bit of Helen almost to some extent. Yes, d definitely. Although I'm really fascinated by, I mean, I think that was a beautiful, so interesting comment. And I share my sympathies. And, and I'm also thinking about how she explicitly took that feeling of anger and 
made her sister like reject her, right? It was like, I mean, she got to spend time in her sister's company, but she got to be mad at her because her sister went off and abandoned her. Mm. How dare she, you know? And I mean, I, I, I get that. And then I think about the fact that like, she's still alive and, you know, like, but just has blown her off. Helen said that she sometimes consoles herself this was not in the piece, but she said that Helen sometimes consoles herself by just pretending that Bobby is still living in New York. He's just up there somewhere, you know, doing his thing. And she's just lost, lost touch with him. I think it's so interesting that the, the kind of tricks of the mind we need to play to, in order to get through the, this kind of loss. It, yeah. it reminded me of that. Can you tell us one of the lasting lessons that, that Bobby left you I, there was a, a nice story you had about writing <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean i can tell you that one it was a very funny thing he wanted to be a writer and you know i was older than him so i was starting my writing career and he noticed this tick very early on that i had which is that i ended all of my very short pieces for new york magazine with a quote from somebody else <laughs> and he gave me grief for it saying you're such a wimp take ownership of the story. You have the last word. You're the writer. Why are you like ceding the power to someone else's voice? And I gave him this high-minded lecture. Well, they're profiles and I'm trying to bring them to life on the page and blah, blah, blah. But he was right. And it was the first thing. And it seemed almost kind of male. Like I was being female and deferential. And he was like this alpha guy who was telling me to take control on the page. But I, I never let go of it. And I worked really hard throughout my writing career to figure out how to end stories on my own in my own voice, unless someone really deserved the last word in their voice. And now I'm giving everyone a preview into what I might have done in my Atlantic piece. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I anyway. immediately scrolled down to the <laughs> I know, everybody does. I know it's... <laughs> After I read I, I think, I know, I know. And I figured, what the heck? You know, what the heck? Yeah, anyway, but I, yeah. I love that this this person who was younger, right? He was a friend of oh, your younger brother, and you were like, "What are you doing, brother. giving me writing advice?" Oh but yeah, I, this little twerp. What was he doing? I was at first really annoyed. You just I kept swatting him away like a pest. But he was, of course, right and wise beyond his years. Well, Jennifer Senior, thank you for this piece, and thank you. I, I imagine I don't know how long you thought about telling this story, but it can be hard to tell stories about something you're so intimately connected with. Years and years, I waited until you're 20, and then I did. Well, your closeness to it really comes through, and so I really appreciate you coming on today to talk more about it with us. I really appreciate this really thoughtful, wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. Jennifer Senior, staff writer at The Atlantic. Her story is What Bobby McElvain Left Behind. Thank you to our listeners for their stories and reflections. And my thanks to Ariana Prail for producing today's segment. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.